Hi, this is the 12 Inquiries, and we're your hosts. I'm Luis. I'm David. And we're two 40-year-old dudes that like talking. And today we're going to talk about turning 15 on Twitter. It's a quinceañera. I can't believe I haven't <laughs> thought of that before. That's amazing. Coming so, of age on Twitter. It's a coming of age. For, for anyone who's not familiar, the quinceañera is the Mexican version of the Sweet 16. So yeah, we're, we're coming of age, man. 15 years old on Twitter. How does it feel for to you? To be 15 on yeah, Twitter? To, yeah, to be 15 on Twitter. Because I've spotted a few people that I was surprised in these past months. A lot of people hopped on in March of 2007, I've discovered. So there's quite a few people that have been doing the little graphic, which, parenthesis, it's a crappy graphic. Like, Twitter should invest a little bit of design into these, like, we're doing a special graphic so that you could tell people it's your Twitterversary. They're crap. Anyways, so what's it feel like? Honestly, I mean, on that, isn't that a huge missed opportunity for Twitter to not give you a personalized, like, you're 15 years on Twitter. And then you know how Facebook and other social media apps, Spotify, right? They give you your year wrapped and people go crazy. Like, oh, the algorithms know me so well. How did Twitter not give us that? How do they not remind us of what it's like to be on Twitter for 15 years? Man, in, in a social media environment where everyone copies everything the fact that this really cool thing that spotify does has not percolated i mean nobody's doing it well even instagram doesn't do it well and third-party services have been doing their year in review for a while now apple music doesn't do it they tried to do a version of it that was like a playlist it was crap it was terrible it's the only time i felt bad about ditching spotify it's such an opportunity to say this is what 15 years on twitter looks like and these are your top i don't know faved or retweeted or you know these are all your tweets that you did after 12 a.m here was your best buddy in 2012 here's what you were talking about remember where you were during this like major thing that happened what did you say the day after trump was elected i don't know there's just so much that they could have done that they didn't but your question was how how do i feel about turning 15 on twitter slightly older than that off twitter you know as a 15 year old would say it's complicated right like how do I, do I still want to be in this relationship? I think that I do. There's a lot, there's a lot that makes me want to stay in it, but there's a lot that doesn't. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this inquiry with you. Why I wanted to have this conversation and exploration is like a little bit of a couples therapy about Twitter. How, how can I, how can we make our relationship better with Twitter? And I think that we've had different experiences with it. In large part, I think I went down the path of, Twitter professionalism, where I started using it related to my work with my colleagues. And it just got a lot serious. It got a lot less fun. Whereas you've managed to keep it, I think, mostly apart from your professional life. And you've managed to have more fun with it. I mean, does, does that sound right to you? I have a lot of people that follow me and that I follow because of a professional encounter. I have, because my profession is creative, that gives me a tremendous amount of leeway to justify to myself, yeah, that cat meme is appropriate because I'm creative. That's what they hired me for. So it doesn't matter that the director of, you know, some NGO or who is now a, you know, really well-known journalist, like, it's fine that they realize that I'm such a Star Trek nerd because I'm a creative. So. That gives me a ton of leeway that, that you as a uh, program officer for 
over a decade, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a very, you're, you're perceived very differently. Whatever you might say on Twitter that is more in your sort of personal persona could be interpreted, especially given some of the topics that you deal with. So I totally get that. I think it's a very different experience. And it seems to me that since we've been doing our research on this inquiry over a month, approximately, you've started to dip your toes, I've noticed, in approaching Twitter a little differently. I feel like you're, you're reconnecting with a little bit of the, of the Twitter magic. Trying to. I, that, that's one of my, like, how, how can we give a little bit more uh, oomph to this relationship that's gone a little bit stale? So I just listened to a great... So you're role-playing on Twitter? <laughs> I am. I mean, isn't everybody role-playing on Twitter all the time? Though yes, maybe but mine was like... a reference to, 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 to sex and relationships. Because <laughs> you get it, what I did there? Downvoting that comment. Which I actually want to, I want to get into this downvote feature. I don't, I don't have it yet. No way. No, no. I feel like, like none of like all of Mexico is without downvoting. I, I don't know because they don't they roll it out geographically, but also sort of kind of segmented. So I haven't asked all of Mexico yet about downvoting. In fact, when you mentioned it in a tweet, like a little thread thing that we had, I thought you just meant like, you know, a spiritual downvoting. I didn't realize like <laughs> there was a there was a feature now. I also am no longer like paying for Twitter blue because I had to like use a US credit card and it was just to test out the features. So maybe maybe if I still was, I'd have the downvote. I feel like I would have used it a lot with the whole Will Smith slap hot takes and, and people probably did use it. Actually, do you get a notification if you're downvoted? Downvote me, no. downvote something, no? Like, no, I'm happy to downvote you. I already have. You want me to downvote more? <laughs> I haven't realized it. Okay, so then there we go. There's the answer. Twitter does not let you know that you've been downvoted. But you know, the downvotes are only for replies to other people's tweets. You can't downvote an original tweet, which mm. I think is interesting. But there was a lot of excitement around it. Like both, what's his name? Mark Andreessen, is that right? And yeah. Elon Musk said that this is the most exciting thing to happen to the internet since the launch of the iPhone. Bullshit. That sounds like hyperbole. To it me. is hyperbole. The most exciting thing to happen to the internet would be the edit button on Twitter. That's what we. That's that's all we need. But then they would be done. They'd have to fire engineers. There would be no reason to innovate anymore because that's the that's the holy grail. The GIF was the most exciting thing on the internet, and the guy who invented the GIF just passed he, away. A he just days died. Ago. That's that? true. He insisted that you pronounce it GIF, which is too bad. It is too bad for him, but. May he rest in peace. He gave us a lot. And, and, and think about that. This I'm actually going to tie this into Twitter in a really nice way. Check out this segue, right? The GIF or the GIF was a technology that was not meant to last or to be used this long. It, it was an image compression format at a time where there were very few image compression formats. So the idea that we're still using it that's that's got to be like amazing on some level, even if people are mispronouncing your invention. And Twitter, in a way, is one of these things that has maybe outlast some of its naysayers, especially when compared in terms of its uh, market cap and all of that like VC broy data about active users compared to its main competitors. It's it's still here. Yeah. Absolutely. It's still here and it's very different from what it was. And when Twitter launched, we would have never guessed that this is the platform that's still going to be here 10 years compared to so many others that are no longer here. 
right? That just would have been an, an impossible thing to predict. I mean, I think this is one of our shared geeky interests is just how technologies are developed seemingly because an opportunity arises or to meet some sort of problem. And then they really change over time. Like people just threw money at this thing without a really clear sense of how it was going to start making money. I think, I think it, it, took, it took three or four years before they even started making money, let alone turning a profit. And to be sure, it is barely profitable, right? Like it is crazy how influential Twitter is in shaping elections, who leads countries, whether there are wars, the market value of a company based on what someone tweets. And it's a company that compared to the other, compared to Google or Microsoft or Apple, I mean, it's just, it barely makes money. And what I found really interesting is that when Apple changed their privacy policy or, or how they prevented ads, prevented apps from tracking you right across applications for advertising that I think Facebook lost $10 billion in revenue as a result of that. But apparently it didn't affect Twitter that bad. And that's because Twitter's advertising isn't very effective. How targeted can you be? I'm not going to click ads that relate to the things that I tweet about because that's just not how Twitter as a platform works, which I think opens up a really interesting opportunity. I'm really interested in what if Twitter is valuable enough for its users that they're willing to pay even half of what they pay for Netflix or Amazon Prime, right? What if we're all willing to pay $6 a month for access to premium features in this, this so-called public square. And Twitter doesn't have to finance the content creation, doesn't have the production costs that something like Netflix does. What could this thing become? What if they don't have to track us? What if it's not ad-based? I think it's a really exciting opportunity to think about like, what do we want Twitter to become in the future? I identify deeply with Twitter because Twitter is a C student, man. Twitter is just scraping by, you know. Always. It's got that C average, baby, and it's enough. It's enough to stay in the game. So I love that the C student's the one going like, well, I'm not particularly wedded to this business model because it's it's good enough. But, you know, it's not Facebook big. It's not Google advertising big. That I think is amazing. And I think it's great that they're thinking about ways to sort of change the dynamic of how people use the service in the public square and, and how it's built the, the, the back end of it. I think that's a really valuable thing that they're doing. I do see value in Twitter. I'm, I, I'm often reminded of it with events in particular, the, the live, the timeliness of being able to suddenly have the same conversation with thousands or you know hundreds of thousands of people around a topic to me is fascinating it's it's this it's having a conversation around an inquiry in real time or practically real time with a bunch of different people and that is really cool and that still manages to fill me with awe you know the oscars the slap the subsequent conversation when that got kind of like tired and people started doing this really lovely thing where they would take photos of Will Smith's macking Chris Rock and use them to link out to reports on climate change. That was great. And that's so Twitter, you know? That's especially Mexican Twitter. I mean, meme culture, but, but it's- I first saw it from like a US-based journalist who did that, but 
Mexican meme culture and Twitter are a force of its own. It it fills me with pride, actually. I get I feel more pride at a clever Mexican meme on a timely conversation or topic than I do when like Mexico goes to the Olympics or the World Cup. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. I feel uh, some American shame that our meme game is so terrible, <laughs> like awkward, slow videos of facial expressions. But, you know, th so you're talking about Twitter. So that could describe the video recording of this podcast. <laughs> awkward facial expressions. Awkward, slow videos of facial expressions. <laughs> so you're pointing out like one use case of Twitter, right? Which is Twitter to bring people together when something's happening, whether that is like a sports game or Will Smith slapping Chris Rock or a presidential debate. And that is a great use case of Twitter, one of my favorite, because it does feel like you're kind of part of a spectacle and it's very easy to participate or not participate if you want to back out. But something that I've been thinking a lot about, which is prompted from a, a book that I read, we wrote, both read a couple of books to prepare for this. This one is called a Twitter a Biography. It's just this idea of competing uses, competing cultures of use of, of how we use Twitter. And, you know, the way that I use Twitter oftentimes is not so it's somewhat similar. But like if I read a book or I read an article or I read a combination of articles, I really want to talk to someone else who has listened to that same podcast or read that same article. And Twitter is not set up so perfectly. I mean, you know, it has that section of like most tweeted articles in your network. I think that's a subscription service. So I can go there and I can click on it. But recently I listened to Tim Ferriss interview Mark Zuckerberg. And the same night I finished Dave Eggers' novel, The Every. And if you listen to that podcast and you read that novel, you just, you desperately want to speak to someone else who has also listened to the podcast and read the novel. And I'm sure there are five other people out there in the world who have, and I want to talk to them so desperately right now. So if Twitter were able to give that functionality to me, that would be amazing. I would easily pay $6 a month for that, but that's different than a back channel at a conference or let's all react to a sports game. Hashtags, baby. I mean, like I do use Twitter for that and it does work. It's proactive. It's not like an algorithm based thing. I binged. It's one of those things where like, I want to say it's because of my, of my partner, cause she really wanted to, but I probably wanted to too, which is to say that I binged Bridgerton season two over the weekend. I heard that season two is like soft porn for women. And season one, but totally. It is, it is, it is the Netflix high production value equivalent of the romance novels that you would find in the supermarket checkout lines. Very beautifully shot, exquisitely done, loved first season, didn't love the second season, but that's not what this is about. The point is that I really disliked two of the main characters. Like I had strong opinions of my hate for them. So, you know, I, I went on Twitter and I, and I started tweeting, you know, oftentimes just, I hate Kate. Like, who the hell am I talking about? Nobody would know. But funnily enough, somebody picked up on it and yes, and replied and said, no, I hate the sister. And then it was like a little better. And, and there wasn't as much as engagement as I wanted because I ultimately, I didn't use the hashtags and I didn't search for conversation around it, but it still felt like it scratched the itch of that, that you're talking about. Like you want to have this conversation with people that are having a similar cultural or personal, because I think it can also be that experiences you. 
And for me, the, I, I follow a lot of Star Trek hashtags. So whenever it's Trek related, I'm there. I get a lot of kind of mental health conversations as well that I find really interesting and engage with. And suddenly I'm having a little interaction with a stranger where I'm acknowledging that, yeah, man, you know, we all, we all use confidence to bluff through insecurities, for example, it's there. Could it maybe be easier to get to it? Sure. And, and I think that broadly describes the entire experience of using Twitter from 2007 to 2022. You get as much out of it as you're willing to spend time with both in how you tweet, who you follow, who you unfollow, who you mute, which is also a very important feature that not a lot of people use enough. Mute those keywords, man. They make life a lot better on Twitter. What I love about your use of Twitter is that you are very proactive. Like, why did I not just search Dave Eggers, uh, Tim Ferriss, Mark Zuckerberg? I'm sure I would have found somebody tweeting about that thing, right? Or I could have been the first. And then maybe someone would have searched for my thing. And the fact that I didn't do that makes me feel like a bit of an idiot. But I don't think I'm an outlier there. I, I do think the algorithmic order of your feed, based on your interests, based on what you're clicking, does encourage us to have more routine, more echo chambery conversations. You know, I, I feel like there's a, a distinction between using Twitter as a pathway to exploration, to meet new people, to find out about new things, to discover like, oh, so maybe I liked Bridgerton or maybe I hated these characters. Maybe that means that I would like this other show hmm. compared to just being reactive to Twitter of signing on or like opening it up, seeing whatever the first 10 tweets they show you scrolling through it and then being like, oh, I hate this and go somewhere else or doom scrolling. I feel like that is the, the dominant experience and I share in it and I want to be less reactive and more proactive. I'm grinning because Twitter is one of the few that still gives you a choice and they try to mess with that choice. They like split the timeline and people were like, nah, stop that. And surprisingly, they're like, okay, we'll stop, which is great. But Twitter does. It lets you switch from home view to home view is like algorithmic and then latest tweet view, which is just how it's always been. There's a significant difference between the two. And I enjoy switching between them. I find it interesting that the algorithm does sometimes bring something up. And I don't think algorithms are evil. I think the idea of letting people fine tune how the algorithm shows stuff to them, I think that would be really cool because a good algorithm is a good algorithm. I enjoy the TikTok algorithm. I think it's really good at surfacing things that I like. It feels like serendipitous discovery. So I like having both. And honestly, if Instagram does go through with it and returns an option to toggle on a chronological feed, that would you be did. cool. So on Instagram, I have been using it, but I don't, I don't do it on Twitter. It's just not part of my routine on Twitter. I just go to home and then I go to the different lists that I put together, which is one way to. Right. I hate home. I, I don't use lists. I love the latest tweet, man. And, and I can spend an hour just kind of going through that. And it takes me places. How many people do you follow? About 1,200. About the same amount of people that follow me. Lately, I've been following a lot of television writers because it turns out that they're witty, which makes... Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. Exactly. And 
it's great, man. You know, authors, a lot of science fiction authors, authors are great. And I want to, I want to throw this out to, to people on Twitter. Authors are the sort of like culturally important people that are culturally important, but still accessible because they're not a movie star, unless it's like, you know, a JK Rowling or something who you want to yell things at a lot of the science fiction authors that I follow, like they don't, you know, they have maybe 20,000 followers. So if you tweet at them, they're probably going to reply. And that's cool. That's still super cool. And that's, that's also a very Twitter thing. I think it happens sometimes on Instagram, but the, the Twitter experience of, of just tweeting at someone well-known or famous or whose work or art or even academic work you admire and that person replying is kind of amazing. I, I remember when Vicente Fox, the former president of Mexico, got on Twitter for the first time after he was no longer president. He was saying some crazy stuff, as the man does. And I remember I was like, something like, bro, you've had a couple of tequilas tonight, obviously. And he writes back right away saying, I have one tequila every night, never more. I feel just fine. <laughs> he was like so earnest about it. I loved it. But that's the type of thing, I, you know, that wouldn't happen today anymore. But but something like that happens. It, it still does, man. That's what I'm saying. And this is why this is kind of interesting, because we've both been on Twitter for the almost exact same amount of time. You beat me by a month because you know cooler kids, apparently. And our experiences diverged significantly. I don't know, maybe some sometime during the pandemic, I came across a tweet by Duncan Jones, the director of Moon and a bunch of other science fiction movies and the Warcraft movie, who is also David Bowie's son. And I replied to a tweet and he liked my tweet and replied to it. And suddenly I'm having a dialogue with David Bowie's kid. Mind blown. That gets at exactly what I love and hate about Twitter. It's like the democratization of access. Because now we're all just Twitter accounts, right? You don't get like a better Twitter account. Maybe you get a blue check, but that's it. And yeah, you can engage and, and whatnot. On the other hand, there is part of Twitter that does still feel like a high school personal, a popularity contest to me. And that gets annoying where how many followers you have, who responds, who doesn't respond. Who has that, that blue just, check? Who has the blue check? Maybe that's just life. So we, we talked a little bit about like these competing cultures of use on Twitter and how different groups of people like journalists have a certain way that they use Twitter, right? And politicians and... Gotta use those threads, baby. Uh-huh. And then artists, I think, have mostly gone to Tumblr and other places. Like, I don't see that many artists on Twitter anymore, sadly. You mentioned to me that your mom is on Twitter. My mom is... you been... and your mother use Twitter in the same way? I've never had the conversation with my mom about why she uses Twitter. I remember there was a point at where she got to a thousand followers before I did. And I was just blown away. And primarily it was because she used it a lot. One of the traits that I share with her is we are sort of voracious news people, politics, general culture, where we love just sort of deep diving into it. And we both read a lot. So the, that combination of a text-based social media service and space, and it also being a space where a lot of breaking news would happen made it very attractive, combined with the fact that Twitter can be a, a space where you can feel a little less lonely, you know? I know that it certainly has been, for me, periods in my life where I was single or, you know, recently broken up or just feeling kind of alone, man, you know? Twitter was a space where you could 
throw something out into the abstractness of the internet at two in the morning and get a reply. In fact, on this issue of the role of loneliness in Twitter's growth, and it's just like it's its origin story. I think we've all had the experience where we have been by ourselves and you either see some crazy shit and you're like, I need to tell somebody about this, but there's nobody here to tell, or you have a realization or something occurs to you that's funny or witty and it goes to Twitter because there's no one else who's with you at the time. And you're kind of hoping, well, maybe this will reach one of my friends, but it's not quite a text message. It's not quite a group chat. It's like, no, we're going to put this out onto Twitter. And that, I remember doing a lot of that in my earlier years on Twitter. And I felt like that was something that gave it a kind of serendipity and playfulness and delightfulness of like, what witty, clever thoughts are people having right now? What weird shit are they seeing that I want to know about? Somehow, and I don't know if just we as a species have become more angry over the past five or 10 years, but now it feels like Twitter is the place I want to go to when I want to rant about mm. something, when there's something that's pissing me off, when there's someone who has offended my worldview or my values. Do you feel that? Do you feel like the 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 tone, the weight of Twitter has changed? And if so, why? A hundred percent. And I feel fortunate that something in the instinctual way that I approach Twitter has veered me almost slowly, like a wind pushing a sail, just slightly off center of the really toxic aspects of Twitter. And maybe it's also privilege, you know, you know, I'm a middle-aged dude. So there, there's less to come at me with. I know of people who have had just really profoundly toxic experiences on Twitter. And there are some really profoundly toxic people on Twitter. Twitter has done a terrible job of creating the tools. And I suppose that's why the downvote in reply threads is such a big deal. They've very been very, very slow to empower the user to self-moderate some of that toxic behavior. So I, I do think that it has changed. I do think that we're angrier because there's, I want to say that anybody who grew up or was born in the 90s through the early 2000s, there was a 20-year period in Western society where there was a lot of optimism, you know, and it took a while to realize that a lot of this cool stuff that was happening had a, a dark side to it. I still remember thinking 4chan was like, ooh, cool that this thing exists. And then I spent too much time on it and found like some really dark, dark stuff. And you're like, holy, not, yeah, go, oh, go away, not going there anymore. So I do think that it, there's a disappointment is what I'm saying with where we're at today, 22 years into the 20th century, two years into a pandemic. And people need to vent. And it's easier to vent on Twitter than on Instagram. My one interaction with 4chan was when I was in Washington, D.C. This is before 4chan jumped the white supremacy shark. It's in Washington, D.C. It's like 2008, 2009. Uber had just started. And Uber was the startup that was trying to give people rides when you had a taxi medallion monopoly that controlled how you could move around the city. And so 4chan was like, we got to support Uber. You know, they're the small up and coming incumbent. This is when we didn't know anything about their founder or their culture at all. 
And 4chan motivated all of these bloggers and digerati to go to the street protesting on behalf of Uber and against the taxi union and all of the taxi officials so that Uber would be allowed to operate. And I think it was, an, it was an effective protest, brilliant marketing move by Uber, and they were able to continue operating in Washington, D.C. Side note, Uber just made peace with the New York City taxi and limousine uh, commission or whatever it's called. It's come full yeah. circle. Think of all of the social networks that we have and the steps that you would need to take to go on there and just like vent about something. And also the awareness of who sees it. So Facebook is only the people that follow you. Even with public stuff, like you never see other people's public tweets unless you're Googling for it. And even then it's super rare. TikTok, you gotta, you gotta record a video. Instagram, you gotta do something with image primarily. Snapchat is video. And I think it, it has shown that people are really comfortable being profoundly vile when it's just text in a way that they might not if they had to even say it. I think that's totally right. In terms of ease of use, like Twitter is the ideal platform for venting. And that's what it becomes. And then you react to the vents and that's kind of the whole engagement, right? But I just see so much trolling on Twitter. So much like, I'm gonna publish this thing, not because I'm venting, but because I'm hoping to get a rise out of a certain community and then it works. And then they, like, that's the whole engagement thing. And that, you know, I don't think muting certain words, maybe that'll have an effect on it, but that has, taken away this experience of serendipity and curiosity and delightfulness that I experienced in the early days. So I just feel like Twitter is still able to be a beautiful thing and a lot of fun. And all of those things that I experienced early on, I can, I just need to be more intentional about it. I need to be a little bit more like you. I'm a very curious person by nature. And I feel like as a platform, Twitter rewards my curiosity most of the time in a positive way. All of the things you're saying, the vileness, people like attention. We like to feel seen and heard. Hate, fear, trolling, they can be shortcuts to attention. And if you don't particularly care what kind of attention, just you want the attention, it probably feels empowering. I remember at some point reading an article about some person that like got trolled on the internet and took it really far and actually managed to track down the human being that was behind it. And it turns out that it was a really mild manner, just like not an asshole, except on the internet. I'm reminded of how confused I was when I moved to Mexico in 2010. And I asked people where they, where they live and people kept saying, oh, your house is over there. Here's your house. And I was like, why is everyone telling me where my house is? And, and that's not where my house is. It's because there's this Mexican custom, right? Oh, you're translating. Like, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's mi casa es tu casa, right? Exactly. So I, I just feel like my impression, my experience of Mexicans, at least in Mexico City, is that the kindest, most generous people outside of their cars, and then once they go into their cars and on their street, the most inhumane serial killers I'm like, whoa, how, how did you become Mad Max all of a sudden? Oh, and yeah. then they get out of the car. And then again, like just most gentle, kindest person. And I feel like how, you know, that environment, that sort of, 
Jekyll Hyde dynamic and the environment and the, the user interface, right? Mm-hmm. And how that affects your notion of power. Like, how, how does that work in terms of who we are on Twitter and who we are off Twitter? It just goes to show that every time you create a space in which human beings can exist, virtually, physically, it becomes almost impossible to predict how we're going to inhabit those spaces. And the things that are going to shoot off from that experience, which is why I'm so terrified of like the metaverse, because man, Facebook with the Oculus, they had to change the default setting so that in these shared virtual spaces, you couldn't approach someone's avatar because people were being sexually harassed. Human beings kind of suck. You know, you give us a new space and there's going to be both. There isn't a month that goes by that Twitter doesn't surface something that makes me think that's what I'm there for, man. You know, and it's usually something that centers around like some kid, some person's kid saying something really funny or like a cat or discovering, I discovered this, I discovered this guy named Kotke who has a blog, has had it for 24 years. He tweeted about this Twitter account that is because of the popularity of Wordle, they're taking famous paintings and turning them into like a little grid of like blocks. They look like Tetris blocks. They're really cool, man. That still happens to me, you know? So, but I think that's just people in spaces. And I don't know if there are spaces where the design, the space, whatever the parameters, churches maybe are one of those where it pushes you towards being a less shitty version of yourself in that space. That's the holy grail, right? Like what is social media that makes you a a less shitty person (laughs) rather than a more shitty person. I, I'm really glad that we are recording this conversation, whether anyone else listens to it or not, because I'm going to be fascinated to look back at it 10, 15 years from now. Is Twitter going to exist? You know, when, when we are in the realm of virtual reality and holograms and augmented reality, I had an experience just this morning when I was at the gym and I had my AirPods in and I was listening to a podcast and I was in my own world, very much in the conversation of those two people, which was engaging, like hopefully ours is. And so was everyone else. I looked around, a lot of people were watching videos, a lot of people were listening to podcasts, but everyone was in their own individual world. And it's not like headphones are new, right? Like we remember having Sony Walkmans back in the day and we used to listen to music back then. Oh, yeah. But there wasn't, there wasn't this idea that everyone was isolated in their own little universe. And it just struck me that, of course, these augmented reality glasses are going to come out and be popular and people will get used to them. And this experience of being enveloped in your own private cultural consumption while you're with other people is going to be magnified so many times. Is Twitter as a text-based platform going to be relevant in something like that? Like, I don't, I can't imagine a Twitter interface with augmented reality glasses that people would want to use. Do you think it's going to exist 10 years down the road? I've got two commentaries on one. One, yes, I do. For the very same reasons that people uh, still use phone calls and prefer them. I mean, it took a pandemic for people to get used to video-based conversations, even though science fiction has been predicting it since at least the 1940s. It turns out people don't like video calls. People prefer phone conversations and prefer text conversations to phone conversations. I think we're terrible at predicting why newer tech is gonna supplant older tech. We still have radios. The podcast as a format is not different from 
the entire history of radio. So I think there's room for both, for sure. People like creating and having a bubble because a bubble is something you control. And the human brain really likes patterns and it likes predictability because it makes us feel safe in what fundamentally is a very chaotic existence. I think there's a human, human preference for that kind of control. And you see it all the time. And yet, people still like being surrounded by other people. So alone with other people is a thing. It's why you go to a coffee shop so that you can do the same thing you could do at home, which is like pull out an iPad or read on a Kindle and except you're surrounded by other people. And there's something that feels a little communal about that, even though you're not interacting with anybody else, but maybe the barista. It felt very sad to me at the gym, but maybe that's just, I'm just not... I don't know. There, there, no, I, I mean, I, I, I remember the first time I experienced that that feeling was in Singapore in like 2004 when this was, you know, pre-smartphone. But the phones were smart enough in Singapore and the Wi-Fi or 3G was strong enough that people were watching videos on their phone. And I was at a subway station and everyone just had their head down. And it felt like, Jesus, this is a dystopia. I'm glad I don't live here. But it was just a matter of time. So one of one of the things that, I think we as a species have discovered is that we at some point went to war with boredom. You know, it just, the experience of boredom is not inherently a pleasant one. And so there seemed to be a broad agreement that it's something you should get rid of. And now that we have, I think people are starting to realize that it served a purpose. I'm not going to remember the tweet, but this idea of like, you know, we, we have paleontolic biology and like the sort of like that the biology of the human being hasn't changed at the pace it would need to, to keep up with the technological advances and the changes. Absolutely not. You'd have to be able to remember like the names and faces of thousands of people instead of 150 people. So there you go. I'm realizing that we should probably wrap Wrap, up. Yeah. Yeah, I've got one more question for you. Sure. What would you like to see yeah. out of Twitter in terms of what it offers you as a user over the next five or 10 years and, and how you use it? I, I would love an edit button. Beyond that, I think it would be delightful to have more control over an algorithm or to be able to tell the algorithm, like, I know, I know that I'm liking this, but I really want you to give me a version of this where you, you give this a little bit more weight. Yes, I know that I spend my time liking a lot of cat videos, love cat videos, but I would really love if you would surface more of this. That would be one of my feature requests for sure. And broadly, to answer your question, I think that anytime you pay for something, your relationship to that something changes in a positive light because you value it, because it doesn't become disposable. I think that the internet did a lot of harm in that it got us used to free, you know, and it took a really long time for people to realize that free meant that you were the product. And, and for a lot of people, that was, that was a fair trade-off, you know, and I think of, of sort of social inequality. And I imagine that for a lot of people that continues to be a fair trade-off. If I don't have a lot of money, then it's great that I can use a platform like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter without having to pony up cash. My, my problem with the ad-based business model right now, the free model that you're talking about, where for all of these platforms, the one metric that becomes most important is just time on site, mm-hmm. right? They just want to maximize the time that you spend on this app. 
And so that's, that's all of the incentives. And the incentives that maximize how much time we're going to spend on this thing are not the things that feel good. No, they're, they're the things not. that rile us up or that we feel like, oh, I, I have to know this, even though it doesn't actually add value to your life. I, I recently heard Jomo, The Joy of Missing Out. I love that. That's my new concept. Just like just radically committing to the thing that you're doing and not thinking about anything else that you're not doing as kind of the joy of missing out because you're so engrossed in this one thing that you're doing. That's, like that's it. beautiful. I like that a lot. What I'm interested in is like you say, what if you value this thing enough to pay for it? And ideally there's some kind of sliding scale. It doesn't cost the same in every country and there are scholarships and, and other things. But what I'm most interested in feature wise is just social discoverability. I feel like Twitter does a terrible job of saying like, Hey, you've mentioned this author or this actor or this director six times over the past five years. And here are three other people in the city where you live that also have that interest. Maybe you should follow them. Or here's someone who has some similar interest to you, but then also is very different on a couple of things. And maybe you'd be interested in, you know, having a debate or talking about those things. This, this feeling that I had of being at the gym and everyone's isolated in their own little podcast bubble. That's fine. Maybe that's normal. Like you say, we're, we're alone together. But what if I have just like, what if there is a super inspiring, incredible conversation just waiting for me to have, have with one of those people? And I don't know it, but maybe we're tweeting about the exact same things while we're at, maybe we're listening to the same podcast. And Twitter could do a much better job of not necessarily making an introduction, but just letting us know that we exist. And it's funny because your, your feature request is both, it ties into a, a deep desire for the magical capacity for technology. And a lot of times AI or algorithms to provide a solution. And I do think they could. And yet at the same time, because I was thinking about that gym scenario, I'm like, as, as you were speaking, I'm like, oh, imagine if there was a way for all of the people that were listening to the same podcast to just have like a little something that would identify each other. And, and then it's up to you if you want to walk up to that person and go like, great episode, right? The privacy implications of that are horrific. You have to opt in. You have right. to opt in. I know, I, and I you have that. to have the safeguards. So, so, but there but are other apps that do something like this, right? Like I have, I have a social fitness app where I do my bike rides on this thing. And if you want, you can opt in and then you can see the people who were on the same roads that you were on for a day. And so if you were like riding with someone, you can be like, oh, hey, good, good job going up that hill. Isn't that, it's so, it's such a simple thing, but think about all of the things, even about the current state of social media that would be improved if they became opt-in. Yeah, absolutely. And, but, but that is only going to happen if you pay for it. Sure. Right? Or, or, or some combination of hardcore legislative changes that force a change in the business model because that's the other thing, man. I don't. I genuinely don't think that a business model that is subscription-based would ever be as profitable. But still, you know, I, I just think if 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 there's a subscription model, and one of the main use cases of Twitter becomes discovering people with common interests or common aspects to their life as you, that's a positive incentive to focus on those things that you actually care about on Twitter. Like sure. I, there are a couple of authors who I like, I love Zadie Smith, but I don't tweet about her that much. But if I knew that I could meet other people who also care about Zadie Smith in my neighborhood, I start tweeting about her all the time. I did not know you were a big fan of her, for example. 
I mean, you've mentioned reading her books, but I know Dulce is a big fan of her, for example, our mutual friend. See, I need you to tell me this. I want Twitter to tell me. There you go. So I want to break it off here, but I want to say that I think that there's an entire inquiry that we could do around almost a, that, a deep dive into that counterfactual. Like, what does it look like? What does the internet as a whole look like? If we transition to subscription models, if it becomes opt-in, what does that look like? And I think that's that's maybe something that becomes part of this conversations with people as we as we branch out into this inquiry. But I'm definitely into it. Let's imagine that. Let's imagine that reality. I love it. Yeah, cool, a little speculative, positive science fiction. There you go. I enjoyed I, this, my brother. Likewise, likewise.